0: Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that we can do a better job creating products that our customers love. This episode is sponsored by the product mastery community. That's right. We now have a community for listeners of this podcast. Members are product managers, leaders, and innovators who are creating value for their customers, and they want to learn with others who share the same commitment. They already have product experience and they want to learn more. As a member of the community, you can participate in the live video interviews with the guests, not just the audio part, and ask questions to the guests as well, maybe catching the ones that I missed that you really want to know more about. Also, you get the interviews at the time they are made, once before listeners that are not part of the community. And there's much more. Community members get things like expert sessions, questions and answer sessions with us, discussion forums, and training. Find out more about the community if you'd like to. I would encourage you to go do so for sure. And see if you want to apply, because there is an application process. You can do that at productmasterynow.com community. I want to tell you about PDMA. PDMA is the Product Development and Management Association. they an association I've been involved with since about 2006. And they really introduced me to a lot of the disciplines of product management and innovation management. They invited me to their conference down in Orlando, Florida this year. This year being 2022, what the conference actually was. I know we're listening to this a little, a little bit later and to interview some of the speakers. And we have one speaker with us today, and that speaker spoke on the topic, six strategies that accelerate innovation. And identifying these strategies started with a question, what do the world's best innovation teams do differently? And to find that answer, Matt Phillips, who is our guest, he interviewed over 100 new product innovation leaders, identifying six key strategies that they use to cut through bureaucracy, find winning ideas sooner, and improving their success rates at launch. A little bit of information on Matt. He's the founder of Phillips & Co., a Chicago-based innovation strategy firm. The company's team of researchers, strategists, and innovators help organizations reimagine their future and invent new products, services, and brands. Sounds like a pretty fun place to be. Matt also has an interesting educational background with an MBA in marketing from the Kellogg School of Management, which is certainly a good honor. But the other thing I'm really interested about, maybe you'll tell us some more about this. He also graduated from the conservatory program in improvisation at the second city in Chicago. I think improv is kind of a a pretty good background for us as innovators as well. As always, listeners, if you want a written summary of anything that we talk about, including a one-page action guide to put into action immediately some of the key takeaways that Matt will share with us, Simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 428. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. So, Give us just a little bit of highlights on that improv thing. Tell us what that was about and what you got out of the program.
1: Yeah, so in my mid-20s, I was working at an ad agency and I was starting to get itchy. Like, I want to develop some new skill. So I took an improv class and just loved it. It was half fun and half terror because you're getting on stage with absolutely nothing and having to entertain or at least continue a conversation with people you you may not know well. And I enjoyed the first few classes, then you audition, you get into what they call the conservatory, and then they put you into a cohort, almost like Saturday Night Live. You've you've Mm. got a group of people that you spend a couple of years with, going through advanced courses and eventually building an entire show. So, as you mentioned, I have an MBA from Kellogg. Did this program for a couple of years at Second City. So I probably consider them equally valuable. So my life tip is skip the MBA and go study improv. <laughs> just go do improv. Cheap.
0: I've taken all exactly. of one two hour class at improv, but I do appreciate that mix between kind of excitement and just all shared terror. I only got two hours into it. Okay. Good background. Yep. So you've got fascinated about what is it product leaders, innovation leaders are doing and how can they do a better job to accelerate their innovation. So you interviewed a hundred of them and you identified these six key strategies. And I'd love to just go through those. If you can take us through the strategies, tell us a little bit about each one.
1: That sounds good. And I can tell you just briefly, the place that this came from, just as a challenge that I started to look into, is that I've worked as a consultant, as you mentioned, in innovation for 20 years. And oftentimes, people can come up with problems, they can find insights. What sometimes has been the biggest challenge over the years has just been projects that kind of grind to a halt or fade away. And I've come to believe that if you could speed things up, that momentum would get more things to the finish line. So I'm always looking for those opportunities to take out that two-week lag or that six-month lag that makes projects fall apart. So I've started to collect these strategies over time. Okay. So if you want, I can jump into yeah, the yeah. first one. Sure. Sure. So so the first strategy, we've come to call question the question. So maybe a quick example brings it to life. So a number of years ago, we were hired by a company called A.Y. McDonald. And you probably don't know the company, but I'm sure you've used their products. They are nearly a billion dollar privately held maker of plumbing parts for cities. So waterworks and infrastructure. So imagine valves and connexure fittings and that sort of thing. So, so they brought us in and they said, help us invent new products. And at the kickoff, we said, to help us understand the waterworks fittings industry, what was the last breakthrough product? And the management team took a while to think about it, and they talked about a specific valve that came out in the late 60s. So that was the last big product breakthrough. And it turns out the reason that was the last breakthrough was if you run a public water system, the last thing you want is a newfangled new product. Right. The next amazing new thing, because you're going to bury thousands of these around your city and you don't want them exploding or you don't want your successor having to deal with some giant. So what they want is the same product over and over. But we and the team at A Y McDonald challenged themselves to say, what could we do in terms of new products? So one of the things we suggested even in the first meeting was, could we reframe what you've even hired us to do? What's written into our contract? And the question in our contract was, what new products can we create? He said, instead of answering that, can we just go after probably the base question, which is, how do we make more money? And they said, yes, absolutely, but we want products. So we worked on both at the same time. In the first few years, most of the successes were non-product successes. They were on marketing and distribution, user experience, that sort of thing. And eventually we got to products, but knowing that it was just a, an extreme uphill battle, we decided to, as I said, question the question. So taking, taking that first question that we began with, in our case as consultants, but anyone, even internally at a big company, if you're handed a challenge by the product team, by the CEO, even the customer, the first step we believe is step back and say, is that even the right question to work on? And why does that accelerate things? Because I think many times teams spend months or years on a question that many people on the team know isn't even the right question. So yep. just pausing to say, are we even working on the right thing, can be pretty powerful.
0: I'm a big fan of the first strategy. Right? The, I think we often should, in the beginning, step back and reframe. What is it we're actually trying to get done? Design thinking calls us, I think the design might have used different terms for it before, but thinking what is that thing we actually need to get accomplished? Because the presenting problem is often not the real problem that is worthwhile to dig into. So I like the way you phrase it, question the question.
1: Yeah, it's funny because the human brain, when you're given a question, instantly tries to find answers. We've all been on a team probably, if you're listening to this podcast where you were challenged to develop consumer insights or customer insights or model the market before brainstorming. And at the first meeting, everyone's brainstorming. It's because we naturally want to come up with solutions. So we would forced ourselves to just say, don't do that. First say, are we even working on the right problem?
0: Very good. Okay. Strategy one down. What's the next one?
1: So strategy number two is simple. It's build dream teams. So I love this quote. Steve Jobs was on stage a number of years ago, and Walt Mossberg asked him, how do you do this? How do you turn out so many amazing products at Apple? And he said to Walt, do you know how many committees we have at Apple? And Walt says, no, how many? And he said, zero. We have no committees. So he said, we're organized like a startup what he meant by that was every single team or every single project, I should say, at Apple had a team built and dedicated to work on it. So instead of saying, hey, let's get one for a person from marketing and someone from logistics and someone from sales. If they're going to work on something they felt it was a worthy challenge, they'll go and hire or take people permanently from another job and build them into a dream team. So, so you may have heard that story, but here's a story from Apple you likely have not heard. So at times I'll teach or lecture at the MBA program at Kellogg. And after one of the classes, a student came up to me who had worked at Apple. And he said, here's an interesting story. The team that, that ran the software GarageBand, and if you, you may know GarageBand is software that allows you to record different instruments. You can record your guitar and the drums and the keyboard and kind of piece them all together into one finished song. He said that the team that was in charge of GarageBand was actually four people, and they happened to play four different instruments. So they not only were they great software engineers and leaders, but you had a drummer, a keyboardist, a guitarist, and a singer. And there came a point where one of those four people left Apple, and they needed to find a replacement. And, of course, this person is primarily a software person or marketing or whatever their role was on the team. But instead of just going and finding someone who was really great at that role that they needed done— they needed someone who did that and played the instrument that was missing because they believed there was a kind of synergy in having the four of them not only be musicians or not only be software people, but also be musicians. So so in strategy number two, when we say build dream teams, what we've seen in companies that accelerate innovation is that they have really thought hard about that team. They haven't just cobbled it together. They're not part-timers working on it to half, half an afternoon on Thursday. It's not someone who just raised their hand and happened to be free. They have really spent time thinking, okay, maybe this can be a very small team, but let's find the exact right people to put on this dream team.
0: That's really good, too. Speaking of jobs, I watched one of his interviews when he came back to Apple, right after being kicked out, did Pixar, next Pixar came back. And he talked about how he characterized employees at Apple and said, we don't hire really bright computer scientists and programmers. We hire creatives who love what they do, right? Whether it's writing music, playing music, doing videography. We hire creatives that happen to be really good computer scientists. And I thought, that's a really interesting way to look at building your dream team, right? I'm glad you introduced that strategy for us.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really smart because you think it's thinking about the person and the team beyond the resume. How are these people going to work together? What do they care about? The other thing that we've seen in teams that... And tend to work really harmoniously and quickly and efficiently is they tend to work together for a long time. So it's uh, not uncommon in large CPG firms to for there to be programs where they move people every 6 or 18 mm-hmm. months, a kind of job rotation, which can be great for developing that person's skills and turning them into a leader someday. But for specialists, it can be an innovation. Sometimes it can be a setback because instead of making this incredibly great innovation team that maybe could spend together, spend five or ten years together. You've now broken them apart every eighteen months, and the team has to kind of reboot over and over. Yeah. So, so I think giving a lot of thought to what that team is, and to your points, uh, kind of those non-resume aspects is pretty critical.
0: Very good. What's our third strategy?
1: So, number three, we call consistently query customers. We try to make it sound somewhat alliterative, and it's. Just a mouthful. So constantly query customers. And the idea here is that in many organizations, it's not uncommon to see that they rev up for an innovation effort, do that giant market study for six months, and then go off and work with those insights for the next three years. And quite possibly never talk to the customer again, which sounds insane, but it's very common. So in many of the interviews that I conducted, this is what I heard, that they would go on to launch a product or create some new innovation. Our marketing campaign, and it would flop, and they would realize afterwards, we really never showed it to anyone. So one of the more interesting examples of this comes from a company based in Chicago called Radio Flyer. It's a family-owned company, had been around for a number of generations. And when a new family member took over as CEO, he came in to a company that was in kind of financial straits. So the investment bankers were circling, and he had to do something quickly. So one of the things that he realized was, that they hadn't done any work around insights or understand their customer in some time. They were essentially making that that metal wagon the, that the many of us wagon. know coming from Radio Flyer. Yes, yes, the red wagon that probably a lot of us had as kids. And they were facing a new threat, which was new competitors coming in with plastic wagons that looked a whole lot like theirs. So the CEO said, let's go on a listening tour. And one of the things they found out was people had this huge emotional sense of nostalgia for Radio Flyer and for that wagon, but also for the Radio Flyer tricycle. And what was fascinating about that was that they had never made a tricycle in their history. But people had this huge bit of nostalgia for this non-existent tricycle. So basically, it sort of merged memories in, in their childhood. So, of course, the first thing they did was they made the tricycle and it became a smash. After that, they built a, a constant listening mechanism. They could go back on a regular basis and talk to customers, show them prototypes, share ideas with them as they were developing them. So instead of that, every year or two cadence it became a weekly or monthly cadence so that then turned into a string of hit products so more wagons tricycles they eventually made bicycles they made e-bikes at one point they wanted a better battery so they reached out to tesla and tesla said not only will we give you our battery technology but could you make us a kid-sized tesla car so they made that as well. All these things came from listening to their customers, but also querying them on a regular basis.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Innovation in some aspects isn't very hard, right? We just need to listen to customers and understand their problems.
1: Yeah. I think sometimes just process or working inside of a big company and managing the dynamics of your own career or kind of internal politics can suck a lot of the air out of the room. So just remembering, hey, you can just pick up a phone and call someone. Like most people love being asked questions. And uh, and being in, staying in touch with customers is a pretty powerful thing.
0: Very good. Brings us to number four.
1: So number four, we call thrive like a beehive. So what's interesting about beehives is there's a queen bee. So you have a leader. It's good to have a leader on an innovation team and a bunch of workers. And they're in there making honey, making honeycombs, doing it amazing. And the way they do that is not just by working internally really efficiently with each other. They leave the beehive all the time. So the way that honeycombs and honey is made is by the queen bee kind of overseeing things, but the rest of the team leaving the hive frequently to go find pollen and nectar. They're always leaving, finding the best they can and bringing it back. So of course, this is a metaphor for just infusing new insights. You could call it open innovation but I think it could be even more casual than that. Just, it could be a Google searches. It could be calling the local university professor or calling up the Food Network star who work on recipes just like that chocolate bar your company is working on. So constantly reaching outside the walls of your hive. So one of the, one of the best examples of this that one of the interviewees shared with me was this was a gentleman who has spent years as a a film in Hollywood. He said after 9-11, the CIA faced a big problem, which was to figure out what the next attack might be. And our previous strategies won't help that much because you can't go out and conduct focus groups, you can't call terrorists and what have you to understand what their plans might be. So what the CIA decided to do was try to envision what a terrorist or kind of a horrific situation might be, right? like the worst project you could take on, but of course, hugely important. So brilliantly, the CIA left their beehive and went to the most creative place they could think of. They thought, who could think about what a terrorist might do in the future? And they chose to go to Hollywood. So not long after 9-11, they convened a secret meeting of some of the top writers in Hollywood, people who'd worked on terrorism movies or CIA, FBI type movies, and just said, if you had to plan the next one, what would it be? And so this team of kind of incredible brainstormers overwhelmed the CIA with these amazingly horrible plots. But of course, that allowed the CIA then to start to build mechanisms to either look for these things or think about how those might play out in the future. So so it's a great example of just leaving your four walls, as you might say, And, and looking for feedback. And it doesn't need to be a giant project. It could truly really just be picking up the phone or what have you. I'll share one other example along these lines, especially if you work at a big company. So Bath & Body Works, which is a 3 to $4 billion a year maker of soaps and bath bombs and that sort of thing, has publicly posted a job for something they call strategic patterning. What that is, is a group within Bath & Body Works of full-time sort of trend spotters. So it's folks around the world who are constantly looking for the next new thing, presumably a scent or a color or a design, and feeding that back to the mothership. So so not only is it a practice, but some people have actually built this into the structure of their organization.
0: Yeah, very important for innovators to pay attention to trends. I like the uh, Tom Clancy take on scenario planning there, right? What might be, and that's a good way to think about scenario planning. Okay. Thrive like a beehive. What is our fifth strategy?
1: So number five, we've called paint the picture. And that is that in a number of the stories that we heard in the interviews, when I asked the question, hey, how have you seen innovation accelerated in your organization? What someone did to skip to the front of the line or skip a bunch of steps in the innovation process was they made the finished product look finished really quickly. So A great example of this is a good friend of mine, Jeff. He worked at IDEO for about a dozen years, and he's had a number of different corporate roles and consulting roles. At one point, Jeff was working for a large financial services company, and they said, hey, we want you to help us figure out how to make our call center better. So maybe not the sexiest thing to work on, but the solution he came up with was pretty clever. So they found that just the time it took to set up a new account Was pretty long. And a new account might look like a company of 75 people, one to get set up a program with this financial services company. And so to set it up, what they had to do was open a new record, type in E Corp, put in their address and everything. And then with every single person, every single one of their 75 employees, they had to put in ABC Corp again, 123 Main Street. And there was no way to copy that across all the different records. It was probably just an antiquated system. So the problem was obvious, but he'd been told that in previous years, there were attempts to fix this, and they had a 20-step process you had to go through. You had to start the program officially, you had to staff it, eventually you had to put together a bunch of specs that went to hearing and QA, and through that process, he said it took, it took 25 people to say yes and only one person to say no. And that's why this would break down over and over, even though the problem was something everyone agreed to. So, what Jeff did in the early days of his job was he opened up PowerPoint and just mapped out what the final process would look like. So, he took existing screenshots, and then he modified them and crude PowerPoint with boxes and type and said and showed in step one, it would look like this. In step two, we would do this. Maybe there's a button that says clone, so all the address goes across all 75 employees. And he started taking this around, but he didn't take it to all 20 people in a big conference. He took it to one or two people at a time. And he said, if this was the final product, would this work? And they said, oh, well, actually, you need this button to go before the clone button. He said, great. So he went back to the lab, made that little change to the PowerPoint, and then took it out again. So he didn't fill out any of the paperwork. He never built an official team. He just created the finished product. He painted the picture right away tweak that picture and eventually got the thing built in six months so something had taken them years of process problems and blockages to overcome he was able to solve essentially by creating the final product without using any of the internal apparatus that they would normally require for such a project
0: there's a innovation incubator where they have a sign on the wall that says a prototype is worth a thousand meetings and I love that I Jeff made the finished looking prototype right of the what well, it could be real and use that to get the stakeholders to buy in.
1: So, so I love that. I think that sign idea is going to show up in a <laughs> keynote or something yep, in the yep. future. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Paint the picture. Excellent. And we got one strategy left.
1: So the last one, it kind of is where we began. And so strategy number six, we call cultivate a yes and culture. So most all of us, if you've worked in creative fields or new product development, you're familiar or with the concept improv. of yes, or improv, <laughs> or familiar with the idea of yes, and very briefly, the concept is this, that if you're leading an improv scene on, on stage, one of the things that, first things they taught us to say yes, and to anything that's handed to you, right? So Chad, if you were to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're trapped inside of a toaster. If, I'm, if I say, what are you talking about? We're on a podcast right now where the scene falls apart. But if you say, we're trapped inside of a toaster, and I say, no kidding, I should have worn my boots, my feet are on fire, then the scene moves forward. So most people have experienced, yes, as a brainstorming tool, but we've reframed it as sort of an aspect of culture. And one of the things you can do is have two people have a conversation, but end each sentence with no but. Right. So I might say, you might say, we're in a uh, toaster. And I'll say, no, but we're on a podcast. And you'll say, no, but I wanted to do a scene. And it's just horrible, right? But if we have the conversation, start every line with yes and, it flows much more carefully or much more logically. So, So the point we end up making with this is all those little moments when you're saying no but to someone feel like you're being rejected or not listened to or your ideas aren't worth it. And those little moments within a culture can determine whether or not people are bringing you ideas to your cubicle, or your office every day, or whether they've learned this is not a place for great ideas and I'll just hold them to myself. So the basic idea of a yes and culture is to take that idea and put it on steroids. Can everyone take any idea that's handed them or any crazy question or pushback and immediately accept it as a valid idea and then build on top of it? So, one, one example along these lines that one of the folks we talked to mentioned was there is a Swedish company called Eleiko, and they are one of the top makers of weightlifting weights. So, if you ever see Olympics and the men and women are lifting those massive weights over their heads, the world championships, the weights are made by Eleiko. So, it's a Swedish company. It's been around about 100 years, and they start out making waffle irons. So... In 1957, one of the plant managers in Sweden was a weightlifter. And they're making these waffle irons. And he went to the owner at the time, and he said, these waffle irons are basically like making weights. If you put them in a different shape, these can be weightlifting weights. And the CEO at the time, she said, that sounds great. Let's go make some. Today, I don't think they make waffle irons, but they are the leading maker of weightlifting weights in the world. So that one little moment is crazy, because you could imagine just in the flow of everyday work, if you're trying to figure out how do we get out our new line of waffle irons or what are the trends in waffle irons and someone comes to you and says, let's go into weightlifting, that's a, absolutely a natural no but moment. But we've seen in the companies that just have an easier time churning out ideas. It's place where everyone understands. If you throw an idea, even at the most stressful moment, someone will say, cool, tell me more. Right. And it just opens up your culture to be able to accelerate innovation.
0: It makes a very different culture. It's just the way that organization would feel, right? That people are more accepting of any idea, and I love that. Yeah, just tell me more, right? I might be thinking internally, this is the silliest thing I've ever heard, but tell me more, right? It might go somewhere.
1: Yeah, and it's so many of these things are against our nature. It's not within our nature to go outside of our walls, to go ask for help. It's not in our nature to say, tell me more to that summer intern's, you know, crazy idea. But all of these are the things that help you skip steps and slice months and millions of dollars out of processes. Yeah.
0: Very good. Well, thanks for taking us through the strategies. I took notes, so I think I got these. Question the question about reframing the problem at the beginning. Build dream teams. Think about who really should be part of the team. Consistently query customers. So make sure there's always the, the some kind of mechanism to stay up with customers, feedback from customers. Thrive like a beehive. Got to get outside your own walls and know what the trends are going on that impact your business. Paint the picture. So the example of maybe starting with the end potential product here and using that really to gain some support as well. And the yes and culture. Thank you very much for taking us through those. As listeners know, we also enjoy innovation quotes around here. What do you have for us, and what does that mean?
1: Sure. So I think that the biggest fountain of innovation quotes doesn't come from an innovation expert. It comes from James Clear, so the guy who wrote Atomic Atomic Habits. So if you don't get his new, I don't know him, I'm not paid by him, but go sign up for his newsletter because it's fabulous. So I've a ton of things in my database that just came from him. So one, one of them is this. He said, before you try to increase your willpower, try to decrease the friction in your environment. So in other words, if something is really hard to do, and this could be true of sticking to a diet, saving money for retirement or what have you, or within your innovation team, it's hard to meet. It's hard to get funding for something. The first thing to do instead of just trying harder and facing the prospect of failing is to find the friction in the system and take that out and just make things easier instead of fighting your way. So in James Clear's books, he's talked about things like if you're wanting to work out more, friction in the morning could be oh, I don't feel like going running. He says put shoes at the door. Right? It's one extra little thing you've done to remove friction.
0: I know of someone that wears their running clothes as their pajamas. So they can just get out of bed in the morning and go, right? Doing what they can to decrease the fr- friction.
1: Holy cow. My my <laughs> wife would not allow that. But I love the idea. Hopefully <laughs> they're yes, clean running that. clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I would be wrapped in saran wrapper if that was going to be my plan. But I love that.
0: I love the quote. Thanks for sharing that with us. And it's a good one to think about customers too, right? If we can remove friction from the customer process, that's usually a win as well. But get it out of our environments to make us more productive. Absolutely. Excellent. Thanks for the insights, Matt. How can people find out about the work you're doing, resources you have available for us? That sort of thing.
1: Best place is just go to our website. So it's Phillips with two L's-co.com. So Phillips-co.com. And then if you look for Philips Ampersand Co., you'll probably find us on LinkedIn, and you could follow us there as well.
0: Excellent. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. So the link is easy enough, philips-co.com, but it will be in the show notes to make it a one-click for everyone. Matt, thanks again.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: And listeners, as a reminder, if you want a written summary of everything discussed and a one-page action guide to help you put immediately into action some of the key points, those six strategies for Matt, Simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 428. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.